Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. This morning's going to be a little bit different. Um, actually, not the, the, the morning that I was anticipating. Um, you know, typically as a church, we, uh, we're teaching through books of the Bible. In fact, today we're, we're resuming our study in Galatians, and we are going to be doing that. Um, but uh, what we don't do as a church typically is, or I'll, I mean, I'll just speak personally for me, as a pastor, I'm typically not... Uh, you know, getting up Monday morning and reading the newspaper and deciding what to talk about the next Sunday based on what's happening in the news or what's in the current news feed. Um, we tend to teach through Scripture line by line, and what we find is that the, the passages almost always speak in relevant ways to what's happening in our world and in our nation. Um, and so it's, it's pretty rare that we just stop and, and pause and talk about what's you know, happening in the political arena or in the, you know, in society in, 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 a, in a kind of a topical way. But I've been encouraged to do that this morning by, um, by some, and, and especially by my wife, who, uh, who has great uh, influence over me. Uh, and, and just to talk about what's, what's the, you know, so, so over the last few weeks, we've seen this thing playing out with the Supreme Court uh, making a, de- a decision to reverse Roe v. Uh, Roe v. Wade. And that is a momentous uh, occurrence in our nation. Uh, it's something that many have been longing for, contending for, hoping for, praying for. And there's others who are very concerned about the implications of that and are uh, are, are responding with fear and 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 all of that. And so uh, what I'd like to do this morning is just share, I, I've actually written down my thoughts because I think this is a, a topic, I, I actually spent most of yesterday um, just typing out some, what, what I've labeled pastoral thoughts on abortion and being pro-life following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, and, and I qualify this by saying these are pastoral thoughts. Uh, so that means I have one perspective. I have my perspective, and I have my sphere of influence, which is um, seeking to pastor uh, one corner of God's pasture, is the way I like to think about it, and that God has given me uh, a stewardship of influence. I would say leadership is a stewardship of influence for the sake of others. It comes out of, uh, out of David's calling, where he, David realized that he had been established with influence in the nation of Israel, but his influence was not for his own sake, it was for the sake of the people. And so what I'd like to, to share is from some pastoral thoughts that, that I would say this is for, for the sake of the people. What, what, what would I say about this? The moment that we live in, which is a very significant time, very significant things happening, and, and significantly divisive for many, so what is, what is we as a church, what's our posture towards that? So these are, this is not comprehensive. These are not the thoughts of a, of a politician. They're not the thoughts of a medical practitioner. Uh, they're not the thoughts of a scientist or an activist. And without maybe stating the obvious, they're not the thoughts of a woman. <laughs> they're my thoughts. 
from my perspective as a pastor. And so I just, I'm going to actually just read these and um, with, with the, the heart to say, come Holy Spirit, would you show us how to be your people in this moment, how to, how to carry your name faithfully? In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, I've been having many conversations, mostly with members of our church, but also with strangers and with people on the street. And what has become even more evident to me through these conversations and emails as well is that the issues surrounding abortion are highly complex and that the opinions, beliefs, and feelings that people have on the topic are passionately held. I've heard many people's personal stories and experiences that have shaped their views on abortion and the ruling of the Supreme Court. Stories that put a face on the complexity of abortion and pregnancy in this still fallen world. We live in a world of now and not yet. What I'm seeing is that people's perspective on what is currently happening is a mixture of theological convictions, political views, shaping influences, and experiential stories. We don't just, we don't just come at it with one, with one angle or from one perspective. There's a mixture of all of these influences that shape the way we come to this. People say things like, this happened to me, or I, I know a woman, or I talked to a woman who suffered through this. I've also come to see that there is a proclivity in our world to vilify and to demonize people who think differently on this issue. That happens on both sides, which just creates more problems because once we vilify and label someone, it becomes much easier to justify treating them with contempt and disdain. Having judged their motives, we find it easier to shout them down, tune them out, or dismiss their concerns. I've seen this dynamic playing out not only in the culture at large, but also amongst self-professing Christians as well, many of whom are wrestling with what is the most loving response to the complex issues surrounding pregnancy and abortion in our world. Most Christians, at least in my experience and in the circles I travel in, most Christians hold to the sanctity of life and to the intrinsic value of every single person as an image bearer of God. Most Christians have therefore wanted to see abortion on demand greatly reduced, if not eliminated. But there is not consensus over how to then deal with all the realities of unplanned pregnancies that gave rise to abortion in the first place. So for example, so I, I've just tried to put a face on the issue, and, and much of this comes from conversations I've had in, in talking with people and people hearing people's concerns, hearing people's hopes. But, but what are the complexities that... that uh, originated or, or gave rise to abortion in the first place. So for example, how do we reduce unplanned pregnancies to begin with? I'm using the language of unplanned pregnancies because typically planned pregnancies are wanted pregnancies, are pregnancies that are not a crisis. They're, they're pregnancies where, where uh, a couple is, is desiring to bring a new child into this world. I'm using the language of unplanned pregnancies because oftentimes those are the ones that can be a crisis. So how do we reduce unplanned pregnancies to begin with? How do we solve the tension? And by we, I mean followers of Jesus. How do we solve the tension of believing that abstinence is God's design until marriage with the reality of a culture that does not share that belief or practice? And to be honest, we don't do that well with it ourselves. 
Do we encourage or, or do we encourage or discourage the use of contraceptives and birth control for anyone who is sexually active but not wanting to become pregnant? And if we prefer birth control and contraceptives to unplanned pregnancies, are those items available and affordable? Are they free to those who are poor? How do we teach boys and men to be responsible for their part in not creating unplanned pregnancies in the first place? And to be fully committed to sharing the responsibilities and the repercussions of unplanned pregnancies that do occur. I have a whole category here of financial costs that are, are, are factors that often drive women to consider uh, ending a pregnancy. How do we address the financial costs that have driven some women to want uh, to end an unplanned pregnancy? What do we say to the women who have no insurance or cannot afford the exorbitant cost of their deductibles and co-pays? If a single woman keeps her pregnancy, how do we help her address her future needs for childcare and for suitable employment once her baby's born? How do we help a young woman keep her pregnancy and continue her education so that she and her children do not become trapped in lifelong poverty? What do we do with the medical costs and the lifelong expenses of keeping the pregnancy of a child with severe medical problems or disabilities? How do we make adoption more affordable for the families who would be thrilled to welcome these now unaborted children into their homes and families? I spoke with a friend this week who, whose family is uh, in the process of pursuing an adoption, not internationally, domestically, has been pursuing an adoption for three years, and they're already three years and almost $10,000 into the process and still don't have a child. How, how, we, that's got to change if, if we want there to be a home for children that were unplanned or whose families can't, can't keep them. Here's another category. How do we respond to the mental and emotional trauma of a wo woman whose pregnancy is the result of rape, incest, or coercion? How do we help them with the additional psychological trauma of carrying a child conceived under those circumstances? And how do we treat women with dignity, compassion, and tenderness when they reveal what they have endured? How do we help the woman trapped in an abusive relationship who would rather end her pregnancy than to bring a child into that abusive environment? How do we help the young woman who never had a healthy family herself and is terrified that she won't be able to provide one for her child? Another category. How do we deal with the harsh realities faced by children who are brought into a home where they are unwanted? How do we address the abuse, the neglect, and the severe poverty that can result from an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy? What do we say to the, the person whose painful childhood has brought them to the place of saying that they wish that they had been aborted? How do we help the, the woman filled with fear and shame because she's not able to adequately protect and provide for the children she already has? These are only some of the questions and circumstances that contribute to the complexity of pregnancy and abortion. The legislation that is being passed by our federal and state governments only addresses the availability of abortion as a legal option. It does not answer all these questions 
nor provide for all these situations. As a result, the legislation will be efficient in lowering the numbers of abortion in our nations. But it will not be effective in addressing the reasons that women have considered or chosen abortions. Sadly, some of the ripples of this change in legislation will be pain-filled lives for the very children it rescues. And if the underlying issues are not addressed, abortion will not go away, it will go underground. And there will be even more violent, more dangerous, and more costly. And that's the limit of the law. Laws can put boundaries in place that encourage us to do some things while discouraging us from doing others. But laws do not and cannot fully address the condition of the human heart and the painfulness of a human economy and the human experience that would cause a mother to consider ending her pregnancy. You know, this is, although I, we're doing something a little different than Galatians, actually the, the place we're in in Galatians right now is contrasting the, the effectiveness of law versus grace the limitations that law can only go so far. The first covenant was a covenant of law. The second covenant, the new covenant, is a covenant of grace. And the, the first covenant wasn't bad. It was just very limited in what it could do. The first covenant could, could reveal the brokenness of mankind, the brokenness of our hearts, the condition of our world, the, the things that we would do to one another, and it could put some parameters to limit the, the violence we might do to one another. It didn't change the heart that that violence came from. It just, it just leveraged our self-interest that, that don't do these things or you might be punished yourself. And so it curbs and restrains the violence we might do, but it doesn't change the condition of the human heart. This law is like that. It, it limits what we might do, but it doesn't address the heart that those come from or the circumstances that gave rise to that. Please hear me. I am not advocating for or justifying abortion. I am advocating for better understanding of a complex issue and of the people on the other side. All things being equal, I'm glad for the reversal of Roe v. Wade because I do believe in the intrinsic value of life. I believe that each and every person is a unique image bearer of the living God. And I believe in a creator who is the author of all life regardless of the human circumstances in which it was conceived. Because of all that, I am deeply pro-life. But being pro-life must not stop at being anti-abortion. It must not stop at ensuring babies survive the womb. Being pro-life means a commitment to seek the wholeness, provision for, the safety, love, hope, justice, health, and opportunity for every living person born and unborn, womb to tomb. The biblical word for all of that, there's a, there's a bucket word that encompasses all of that. It's the word shalom. God instructs those who worship him to seek the shalom of the people they live in the midst of. Seek the shalom of those who do not yet know him or worship him. Seek the shalom of those who have rejected or despised him. Jeremiah 29, God sends his people into exile in Babylon, which is the, the picture uh, of the most godless people in, in the world at that time. People of violence, a people of idolatry. And God says, go and seek the, the shalom, the welfare, the wholeness, the peace, the prosperity, the abundance 
peace between one another, peace between God and man. Seek the welfare of the city where I have placed you. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In its shalom, you'll find your shalom. God would call us as a church to not just contend for the end of abortion, but contend for the shalom of those who survive the womb. Because God, why, why is this? Because God is the God of mercy, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. He extends kindness and compassion where it is not deserved, where it is unearned and not expected. And the word for that is grace. And while laws cannot change the human art, grace can and does. Laws may be efficient, but grace is effective. Grace moves towards the mess of our mistakes and our shortcomings with extraordinary compassion, with unexpected generosity, and with astonishing mercy. Grace changes the economy, and it changes hearts. God calls his image bearers who know him and worship him to reflect his image by being agents of grace in this hurting world. And where grace and shalom are on the increase, the circumstances driving abortion will decrease. And those who don't yet know and worship God will discover his love to be irresistibly attractive and his followers to be appealing and winsome. Grace does not name, grace does not name call, or vilify people who are going to lash out in anger, pain, and disagreement. Grace doesn't shame people for their choices, their mistakes, or circumstances. Grace does not boast or rub people's noses in something they find painful. Grace instead moves towards the mess and seeks to heal, provide, and redeem. Jesus did that. Jesus entered our world and paid the price for our sin at great cost to himself. Church, the decision by the Supreme Court and the trigger laws banning abortion in Idaho do not mark the end. They mark the beginning. This decision makes the work of life-affirming clinics like Stanton Healthcare, who provide hope and resources, community and love to women facing an unplanned pregnancy. This, this law, this change makes those clinics more important than ever. If, if you support those clinics financially, if you volunteer in those places, if you give to uh, provide resources for women facing unplanned pregnancies, now this is more important than ever. Please keep doing so. Please don't, don't let up now. And maybe it's the time to jump in and, and, and raise your participation. This decision heightens the need for nonprofits and ministries who will address those needs that are driving abortion, that are making abortion thinkable. We saw signs recently at the, at the rally downtown that said, make abortion unthinkable. Well, the reason abortion is thinkable is because the, the types of things that I just listed that, that would cause a woman to, to, to consider doing that. See, if we, don't, if we don't vilify someone as just wanting to murder or being a killer, but we actually stop and think, why? let's find out what's driving this. Then we need to be able to address those things. That's shalom. This decision raises the need for legislators who continue to address the complex needs surrounding the issue. It wasn't just this one issue, there's so many issues. 
And so while law is not completely efficient or completely effective, there are good laws and there's lesser laws. And we need legal help. Lastly, it raises the need for families who will open their hearts and their homes to foster care and adoption so that unplanned pregnancies don't result in unloved and uncared for children. The story of the early church is, is church that would, would go and find babies who were abandoned in the dump and bring them into their homes and make them a part of their family, give them a home and a name and a family and an inheritance. That's what the church does because we vote with our lives, not just with our vote, but with our lives. Let's seek a world where women with unplanned pregnancies have an encounter with grace. Let's seek a world where their babies are born into greater shalom. This is how we hallow God's name. This is how we make the invisible God visible. And now is the time we must do it. Church, if I could encourage you as you consider this from your perspective, and again, this is a pastoral thoughts from, uh, from, that are limited to my my experience, my understanding of God's word, um, and not comprehensive, and there's lots of things I'm sure I left on the table. But I want to encourage us to step towards the mess. We have a, a, a phrase that we use around here where we, we say, you know what, there, if, we, if we do this thing, that's going to get messy. If we embrace this topic, this is going to get messy. But grace calls us to move towards the mess with compassion and with mercy and believing that, that God will empower us to, to make him visible in the world. And so, uh, church, let's, let's see what we can do together. Together, we've been a, por- a part of, of supporting Stanton's clinics and, and seeing free care provided for women that are experiencing those situations. Grace goes after every individual person, after every individual child. Laws are efficient because they address the big picture, but grace is effective because it goes after the person. It understands the situation. It seeks to, it gets, grace gets curious about what the need is. And then grace says, even though I didn't create that, that need, I want to meet it. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus entered into our world, that's exactly what he did. All right. We are going to be in Galatians today. <laughs> and as I said, we're in a passage that's actually talking about the difference between law and grace. Hmm. I hope you did your devotions because this is a chapter four that we're picking. We're resuming in chapter four of Galatians, which is an incredibly rich chapter. And, um, and we're not going to do it anywhere near justice this morning. But I do have something special for you that I think you're, you're going to, it's going to be very helpful. I hope this morning is helpful. It's not comprehensive, but I hope it's deeply helpful. And so um, here's where we're at in chapter four. Um, Paul is resuming writing to the church in Galatia, and he's been talking with them. As chapter three ended up, he was talking with them about being equal heirs with Jewish followers of Jesus. We've got a couple people groups here. We've got Gentiles and Jews, and, and, and that's part of the, the struggle between law and grace is, is all embedded in those cultures. But Paul's been writing to them that, that they are equal heirs with 
Jewish followers of Jesus. And here's why. Because belonging to God's family, being grafted in, adopted in, it's, it's a matter of faith, not a matter of genetics and not a matter of keeping the law, which puts everyone who has faith in Jesus on equal standing. We're just going to read a few verses here. We're going to read Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Paul says, so think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance to, for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Here's our key word this morning. That we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. To understand the impact of what Paul's saying, we're going to zoom in on one key aspect of it here, and that's the fact that he talks about adoption as sons. Even in those few verses, the, the word sons was repeated over and over. And, you know, something has, has, has been happening in church world for the last, uh, well, at least 50 years or so, which is recognizing that there's times where the audience that was being written to would have understand a, a gender-specific term to be gender-neutral. That there's oftentimes where, where Paul says brothers, and, they, and everybody would have known that what that implies is brothers and sisters. And so a lot of some of the translations in order to help us understand that original meaning have actually gone to making the language of scripture actually more gender inclusive. But this one's gender specific. And, and it's important that we recognize that. Here's why. Because he's not just, well, Paul could just say that he's adopted us, that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to adopt us as children. But he really emphasizes that it's to adopt us as sons. And here's why, because he's elevating everyone to the same status, and that's as heirs, those who inherit everything that their father has. Beth and Melissa Moore point to Carolyn Curtis James for historical context. Here's a, a quote from Carolyn Curtis James. She said, given the fact that in the first century patriarchal culture, sons were prized above daughters, daughters who did not inherit, didn't show up in genealogies, and were actually married off to build another man's family. The fact that Paul is telling a mixed audience that they are all sons is not diminishing to women in the least. To the contrary, Paul's words are elevating them to the same high status in God's family as their brothers. God is telling women and Gentiles and slaves that in God's family, you are all sons. In God's family, you're all heirs. There's no, no more hierarchy. Ironically, he says there's no hierarchy by making it gender specific. That's what they would have heard. This was a shocking thing to write to them. It's a shocking thing in the first, cult, first century culture. So we're going to explore this phrase adoption here. 
as a way of understanding and embracing the gospel. And uh, I'm going to invite Amy Cousin to come up and share her story of how she and Simon adopted Audrey into their family. Would you guys welcome Amy? Amy and I have a long history. We went to the same church. We grew up in the same church and for a while in the same school, I think going back to like third grade. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. But I asked Amy if she would come and share the story of her adoption. We've got a few pictures that we'll intersperse throughout her story. But I asked her if she would just share because, and here's why, adoption is an enactment. It's an enactment of the gospel. And if we can think about adoption, we can understand what it is that God has done for us and what he's wanting to extend through us to a hurting world. Well, thank you. Good morning. Um, I, um, I would love to say that my husband and I, because we were Christians, really had a sort of a perspective of adoption when we first got married. Um, we did not. Um, we didn't really put a whole lot of plans into to uh, beginning our family other than that we wanted kids, but we didn't really think beyond um, having biological kids and, and we just wanted one. <laughs> That's as long as we got one, we were great. We didn't think beyond that. And so, um, but we were really touched by adoption. And I, 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 the process for us, honestly, from, from the time that it was pers- presented to when we adopted, um, was probably about six years. And, wow. and most of those years were spent, like four of those years were spent just being on the same page, that we would both be open to adoption. By that time, um, uh, we were on the same page. We had two children. We have three all together. Um, we have two sons, Andrew and Ben, and, and then Audrey, our daughter. <clears throat> when we finally said yes, it felt like God had already been prompting our hearts. He was already asking, you know, we have, we have two, we felt like we were not done. We felt like our family was not complete. We wanted another child. And um, he asked us if he, if we, he could choose. Hmm. He could choose. And so we, we said yes. And, and that began a two-year process. That sounds really long, but it actually was really quick considering all of the variables that we were um, we were dealing with, but the pieces just fell into place. Um, uh, we began to look at adoption agencies. We found a Christian adoption agency that had uh, a, just a Christian redemptive uh, view of adoption. Um, you know, they, they uh, talked about adoption not being a plan B. Um, adoption is not a plan B. Adoption is, mm-hmm. is just another branch on mm-hmm. the family tree. It's just... It's just a different perspective. And, um, you know, uh, we are reading in Galatians today, Ephesians also has, uh, you know, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans talks about um, uh, you did not receive a spirit of slavery uh, uh, to fall back into fear, like the song that we sing this morning. Um, but you are... Um, you received a spirit of adoption as sons who may cry, Abba, Father. And so those were the, those were the perspectives. And so we, we knew we were called. We felt God call us to adopt internationally, specifically China. Um, 
And uh, we, that comes with a whole uh, load of, of paperwork, <laughs> a mountain of paperwork in triplicate, uh, <laughs> and, and it has to be notarized. And I, I had a stack that went out um, of hundreds of pages and so there was this whole process of, of adopting. We also had to wait until our youngest was a year old before we could hmm. apply. I remember waiting till literally the week that he turned one and, and mailing off all our pay paperwork. Like we could legitimately start the process rolling. Um, and we were so excited. So we, we did that. We had to, to find funds. And I have to say, God was gracious to us. We got a windfall of a tax return. Hmm. That, that gave us the exact amount. So, you know, tr uh, Trevor mentioned how expensive it is. It was just, um, this was over 10 years ago. So it was just $10,000 to get the ball rolling. That didn't get us anywhere close to adoption. And that was just, that was just all that was required from us. And um, it's, like, it's, it's like buying a new car you know, adopting. Um, uh, it's, it's expensive. Um, but we just felt God, God, God was faithful. We took a step of faith and we, we walked it. I remember we got a room ready. We had to shift rooms and, um, you know, uh, got, got everything out for her, buying things. I remember finding this blanket that I was just thought was the most adorable thing and picking it up for her and praying. <laughs> sounds stupid, but praying over this blanket thinking, I hope that she feels safe. I hope that she feels warm. I didn't even know who she was at that point. Mm -hmm. And just, we, we spent a lot of time in prayer. Um, uh, so it was a, a definite um, preparation process. We opened up the door to special needs in our adoption. And uh, we found that most kids that have special needs of any kind, any issues, are the ones that are the hardest to place in homes. And so we said, let's open that door. And we did, and we found that most of the issues were things that were completely medically addressable. They would no longer be an issue if they just got the medical attention that they needed. So we opened that, and so um, uh, as soon as our son turned two, so we started receiving information about children that were up for adoption from our agency. And um, it was overwhelming for me. We would, I would sometimes get three and four children presented with needs. And, and, and we kept thinking, how do you know when you're presented like these, these kids? I saw all of them as precious. And I knew we couldn't take them all. And, and how could you say no? But um, when uh, our, uh, we had some miraculous circumstances, I, I won't go into all the details, but on a day that an agent shouldn't have been in the office, the office was closed, uh, it was a weekend, they came across um, a, a case that they thought was appropriate for us and sent it to us. And as soon as we saw um, um, our daughter's picture, we knew that she was ours. Um, we knew that we wanted to fight for her. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 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 her name was... Her name is uh, Ihwe, which means beautiful flower. Um, and we did everything we could. When you are in the adoption process and you see a child that you want, you can do a thing called like a lock. And you have 48 hours to get all your paperwork together. 
to submit to officially request adopting that individual. So it was a Saturday and everything was closed, including our doctor's office, which was a hoop that we had to jump through. And I just remember we raced that whole weekend, getting everything over. And as soon as like the FedOx office was open on Monday, I was there with our, our request. And uh, we put it in. And um, <clears throat> a little side note that we found interesting as we were looking over our daughter's file is that she was born nine months after um, the point we said yes. Hmm. We were in unity. She was born nine months later. Wow. And we, we met her. We saw her for the first time when she was a year old. And... Um, Anyhow, so we got all that paperwork in, and then it was a waiting game. And I have to tell you that this felt most like the pregnancy to me, not physically, but, but it, just that waiting, that anticipation, that wondering what, what they're going to be like, what they're going to look like. And, and we waited about six months from the time that we handed that paperwork in to the time that we actually got on a plane to meet her. And we arrived in China. Um, we came late. Um, Late into one evening, we were literally going to fly out the next day to another city and meet her the next day. And I remember we just, we couldn't sleep. And we met her. We walked into a room that they had set up for all the children that were being, um, they call it gotcha day, the day that, that hmm. um, uh, you come in. So there was all these children in the room. And I remember scanning the room as we came in, trying to, to pinpoint our daughter. And before I could say anything, um, they just kind of thrusted her <laughs> into my arms. And um, I had been concerned up to that point because she'd never seen a European woman. Um, I was completely foreign to her. And um, she was in my arms. I was just so delighted. Um, yeah, that's me and her on her first day. And uh, she... She was just, we had braced ourselves. We didn't know what to expect. And we just were so elated. I felt like we walked out there holding her. I didn't, I couldn't believe that they just let us exit the building with her. Um, um, and we just loved on her. This is Simon and Audrey. Um, that's one of my favorites from her trip in China when we were, we were there. We spent some time with her there. Um, we were, we were ecstatic and, uh, Um, it, it was an in instantaneous attachment before we even met her, for us. And even though the process for her, like most children, takes months for her to attach her to, to us, she was ours. And so one of the things that we have in our family is a tradition, um, being a blended multicultural family, we, um, all of our children have Chinese names as well as their English names. So she already had a Chinese name. Um, it's also a tradition in my family growing up uh, that the oldest girl in the family is given the same middle last name. So we gave her her name, Audrey uh, Lurie, after our family. There she is, right after she got her cleft palate fixed. Um, she, uh, she was ours, and that bonding process, the interesting thing, when we got her home was the hardest process. So she was sick a lot because of some issues with um, equilibrium and, and uh, um, 
some things dealing with her cleft palate. We got that fixed. It was a really difficult time. She had to learn how to trust us. She had to learn to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really hard uh, walking her through her surgeries because it was frightening for her. And I have to say, even though that was the hardest, hardest journey to watch your child go through, the pain and just being fearful, it was such a bonding. God churned that. Talk about, you know, in Isaiah 61, how he, he, he turns ashes into beauty. It was this moment that bonded us um, in a way that I cannot describe. That's my daughter. That's her cheesy grin. By the way, she approved all this. I couldn't show you any of the pictures unless she, she approved. Um, and so uh, she was, yeah, she was just um, amazing. But it was so sweet to see her allow us in and trust us. Now, she got to get used to us. My, my, in, in, any, in addition to your family, when anybody is, is added in, there's this shuffle and an adjustment as a whole family, and I would love to say that my sons were like completely okay with it. Actually, uh, one son was, one son wasn't. One son is just accepting, and it's his nature. He just easily was glad to have another member in our family. One was not. Um, he was very devastated by the shift in, in um, his, his place. <laughs> um, and, and having to share, because honestly, any time that you add somebody more, you have to make room for them. You have to make concessions. You have to yield some of your desires for theirs. And um, you, have to, you have to let them into your heart. You have to make room for them. And so um, that's, that's a natural part of the process. Um, I feel so privileged. It was a blessing to our daughter. He planned this, though, before she was even born. I mean, if you talk six years, she wasn't even in, in, in a thought. But he had her destination already planned out before she was there. And we were so grateful. We have been so blessed to have her in our family. Um, we are made better for it as a family. Um, we have been enriched, and we're compl- we feel complete. We're complete as a family. We were missing her, and, and she's there now, and we're so grateful that she is. Um, this is our family. My son, Andrew, my husband, Simon, myself, our daughter there in the middle, my mom, Carolyn, and our son, Ben. So we're complete. We're whole, and, and we're appreciative. So thank, <laughs> thank you, ma'am. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and they're going to lead us in one of the songs that we actually opened with this morning. Um, But I hope you hear it and sing it through slightly different lenses, through the story of adoption. The Amy and Simon story with Audrey, that's that's an enactment of the gospel. Because this is what God the Father has done. He selects us from afar, not because we earned his, his love, not because we did anything to advertise ourselves as especially like we'd be a great addition to your family, right? God reaches out from eternity, and even as Amy read, that, that he predestined us for adoption. 
And he chooses us. He sets his mind and his heart on us and he does whatever it takes. He pays great costs. He travels a great distance to do whatever it takes. And he gives us a new name and he gives us a new identity and he gives us a new family. He brings us into a family. He brings us into the family business. And according to this passage, he gives us everything he has. There's nothing that he withholds. Church, here's where we live right now. You know, in, in many international adoptions, I've talked to many friends who've done international adoptions, and often it's a two-stage process where the parents go over, they visit the home country, and they establish that child as legally theirs, but then they have to go home and then come back later to collect the child. And that's where we live. If, you're, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've been adopted into the family, you have a new identity, you are an heir, You have a heavenly father who has great things for you. He's already begun healing you, has begun restoring you, wants to reveal himself to you, to show you how good and how trustworthy he is. He's already doing all of that and you still live in the country of your birth because he's preparing a place for us. He's preparing a place. And when he comes back on that second visit, he takes us to our forever home with him and with our brothers and sisters, all co-heirs, all learning how to celebrate eternity and our good father together. What Paul says in this letter is that that God sent a spirit of adoption into our hearts, that this being grafted and adopted into this new family, receiving this new identity and and choosing to trust someone that up until now we've not known. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. You know, this last series in June, we did a whole series on the Holy Spirit. In some ways, today's still a continuation. Even though we're, we're cycling back to our Galatians series, we're still in the Holy Spirit because this too is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We say, come Holy Spirit. We're saying, would you inform our hearts? Would you send that spirit of adoption training us to know you and trust you, to love you and worship you, to be shaped by you, to take on our place within the family business? That's all part of spirit of adoption. So I'm gonna ask you, if you're here on campus, would you, would you stand with me? We're gonna, we're gonna lower the lights a little bit here and, and here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna sing this last song I invite you to let this be, if you are a follower of Jesus, let this be a proclamation of who God is, of what he has begun and what he will finish. Let it awaken hope. If you're, if you're living with despair or sadness or discouragement, let this awaken hope. The promise of what is to come, God will finish what he's begun. Before we do that, I just want to take a moment to invite anyone who, if you've never responded to this invitation, here's the thing about God's adoption is he does all the work. It was his idea. He initiated it. He's done everything it took to make adoption available. And he's come to us with an invitation. Would you come into my family? Would you come into a new forever home? Would you, be, would you become my heir? but he doesn't force it on us. It's an invitation. Our part is to say yes. And if you don't know that you've said yes to that invitation to adoption, if you don't know that God has predestined you, but it's your choice whether or not to say yes, if you don't know that, 
why not today? Why not begin that adoption process today and invite the Holy Spirit into your heart? Everything that means including the spirit of adoption. So if that's you this morning and, and you'd like to, to, to pray that, I'm just gonna ask you to raise, in just a second, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand right where you are. And I'm just gonna ask our prayer team to then come and just lay their hand on you while we're worshiping you, or while, not worshiping you, while we're worshiping, to just lay their hand on your shoulder and pray with you. They have a, a little welcome packet, welcome to the family that they'd like to put in your hands. Uh, if you're joining online, you can, uh, you can click the, the link there, depending on which platform you're in, and, and, and raise your hand, and we can follow up with you as well. But don't miss this opportunity. We have an extravagantly generous Heavenly Father. And let me just say this. One aspect of the Holy Spirit is especially important for, for those who did not have a good natural family as an example, who for you to hear God as a father, that's a struggle to respond to God as a father because of abuse or neglect or absence. And one of the things the Spirit of God does is, is teaches us to trust him and to know him as he is, a perfect and good, extravagantly generous Heavenly Father. If you want to say yes to him this morning, I'm just going to invite you to put your hand up before we worship. And um, the prayer team is going to come and, and just uh, pray with you. Anyone who'd like to respond to that? All right, if you have your hand up, just keep it up until a prayer team member uh, joins you. And let's, uh, let's worship and respond to this invitation to a adoption by a good father.
Amen. Jesus, we thank you that you paid the price in order to adopt us into your family. Thank you for the future that we have promised. Thank you for the, uh, the work that you've already begun in our hearts to draw us close to you, to form Christ in us. Would you continue to do that? Form Christ in us for our joy, for your glory, and for the sake of our world. May we carry your name faithfully and continue in the work of, the, of your family business, Lord your plan to redeem and rescue a fallen creation. May we have the grace and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, church. Let's go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.